pray together for the reading and preaching of God's word. Almighty God, source of all that is, shine in our lives today. Get rid of the darkness of misunderstanding and confusion. Illuminate our reading of your word that we can encounter the word made flesh and receive him and believe in him forever. Amen. A reading from the epistle of Paul to the Romans, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of our Lord. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you, Liesl. For those of you who uh, knew me when I first was ordained as a pastor um, 13 years ago, um, you may have some interesting memories of me um, as uh, the guy who was always rushing around. I remember Roseanne Guy, who worked in the office. Uh, at, at that point, my email address was like Geo Johnson at whatever it was. I don't remember, SBC Global, something or another, because O is my middle initial. And she said, go Johnson. That's so appropriate, because this guy is always running to something, from something, getting stuff done. I remember at session meetings, I would report quarterly to the elders, and I would uh, always have this big, long list that I'd print out and give to everybody. We've, we've received, you know, 37 new members. We've started four new small groups. We've brought four new interns. We've, and I just checked the checklist, all the, all the stuff I've accomplished. Look at me. I've accomplished so much. I ran over more people than I can count. I hurt more feelings. I offended more people. I pushed stuff to make stuff happen that God maybe was going to do slowly, and I wanted to help him along. Um, but I was always driven. I was so driven. I would go on vacations and, uh, and I remember one vacation, I spent two weeks of vacation one December renovating a section of the building, actually putting up, you know, you know like, like not even two-by-fours. They were like the metal studs and the drywall and, and all sorts of stuff, uh, knocking down a wall uh, with my bare hands and a big old hammer. It was awesome. But, you know, I, I would, and with, or I'd go on vacation and I'd look around the church and say, well, who's in a crisis? Well, I'll take them with me because I want to make sure they're okay. I, I could not rest. I couldn't stop. I was driven, but there was no rest, always needing to accomplish something, no soul rest, driven, restless, busy, anxious, and eventually weary. Have you ever experienced weariness? Do you know what restlessness is like? Is there a voice inside your head saying, get more done, get more done, get more done? What does Jesus say to this? What was he saying to me? What's he saying to all of us now? We're going to read it in Matthew 11, 
Uh, in your Pew Bible, it's page 1513, page 1513 in the Pew Bible. It's Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. The word of Christ to those who are restless and weary. This is God's gospel. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. This is what delighted you. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is offering rest to the restless. And the restless is many, if not all, of us. We're restless in our work. There's job insecurity and wage disparity. If you make a lot of money, then you have to work twice as hard to justify that level of compensation. And if you don't make much money, you've got to work twice as hard in order to make ends meet. We're restless in our work. You know, our work follows us home. Your work phone goes home with you. Your work emails follow you home. Work has fewer boundaries than in my parents' generation. You can never escape. We're restless in our workplaces. And yet we're also restless in our families. Constantly shuttling around to doctor's appointments, little league, soccer, scouts, tutoring, dance, in the car, come on now, hustle, hustle, hustle. So where, where are you going to even find time to have a meal together? You know, you, you get home and, and you've worked all day and you're, you're already exhausted, but you're immediately rushing into the next task of, of starting to put together a meal. And then as soon as you've finished making that meal, you're getting everybody around the table to eat the meal. And as soon as you've eaten the meal, then you're, you're going into the kitchen to do the dishes. And as soon as the dishes are done, you're starting to clean the kitchen and your spouse is sitting there looking at you going nuts saying, would you just sit down? Or maybe you don't even bother to do a meal like that. What's the alternative? Well, there's no time. So there's, there's Burger King. I mean, Burger King was not created to make good food. Burger King was not even created to make cheap food. I mean, if you want good food, you know, you're going to go to to niche. If you want cheap food, you're going to go courtesy diner. No, McDonald's was created to make what kind of food? Fast food. You can go in, you can give your order, and the food is already cooked. It's dropping into a little bin right as you're you're giving the order. Like there's somebody reading your mind in the background because all the food's basically the same, and so they just make it all the time, and it's always ready. But, But then that wasn't even fast enough. We're too restless for that. And so what did we invent? The drive through so that you can just scream into a speaker as you're driving by, roll down your window, and they throw the food into your car. It's that fast. It's just, it's insane. That's what a meal is for us. We're restless in our workplace. We're restless in our families. And, and we're restless in our rest. 
you know, how much of your flex, flex time, how much of your free, free time, <laughs> uh, how much of your free time is spent frantically flipping through information on your phone? You know, I mean, I've seen how on days off, like right now, I turn my phone off on my days off because I found that there were too many days off, Sabbath rests, in which I would go through my work email, and then I'd go through my personal email, and then I'd go through my Twitter, and then I'd go through, uh, you know, my Facebook, and then I'd go through the church's Facebook, and then I'd go through, you know, Forge of Empires and see how I've collected stuff and whether I can move on to the Middle Ages. And, And then by then, it's time to go back to the emails, and then back to the Facebook, and then back to the Twitter, and you just cycle through, and literally, constantly, a different image every half second, constantly getting little things done, and yet getting nothing at all done. And that's what we think of as as rest. Uh, You know, I, I, I look at, you know, when I'm in a restaurant, I can always look around, and there's always at least one young couple, uh, you know, they got rings on their fingers, no bassinet yet, and they're sitting across, nice, you know, linen tablecloth, candle flickering, and they're both looking in their laps at their phones. And you look at it and you say, they don't know how to rest. There's no soul rest there. And I don't know if that marriage is going to last because there's no intimacy, because they're too busy getting tasks done on their phone to actually be present and look each other in the eye. You know, how about vacations? You know, how many of you work twice as hard before your vacation? And then you go on vacation, and the first three or four days, you're so wound up, you don't know how to stop. And by the time you're starting to finally get rested, you're then hopping back on a plane. You're back back in the car. You're on your way back, and then you get back, and you have to work twice as hard in order to catch up for the vacation. You get back from your vacation, you know, and you think, oh, my gosh, I need a what? I need a vacation from my vacation. Or you go on the vacation and you're the to-do list. You've got the task list. You're going to, you know, you've got to see every single monument in Paris if you've got a nice, nice vacation. And, and, and you don't want to lose out on anything. So you're constantly running. Go, 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 go. And you don't have time to just stop and spend eight hours at a left bank, you know, coffee shop sipping some cafe, you know. We're anxious. We're restless. Even in our rest. You know, I'm, this week I'm going to Nicaragua. Um, you know, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So my phone doesn't really work in Nicaragua. I cut it off. Um, so no emails, uh, no, no Twitter, no, no, I mean, I might sneak on for a Facebook post just to post some beautiful photo of tropical trees and sunset and 95 degrees. You can, you can photograph 95 degrees, but, uh, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I'm, I, cause I have to rest. One time a year, I can truly get away and, and not be thinking about church, not be Greg Johnson pastor, but Greg Johnson human being. Greg Johnson, child of God. Greg Johnson at rest, resting in the Lord and not getting anything done. We're not going to go anywhere. We're not going to do anything. The whole goal is to go find some warm place out beyond the technological reach of the United States where I can sit in the sun and do nothing. I, I bought a book last week. Um, it's, uh, I'm going to read it on vacation. It's a history of sanitation in Victorian London. Um, it looked interesting to me. Now, you can't, all, I'll be done with it soon. Y'all can't all borrow it at the same time. You've got to make a list. But, you know, you can, you can imagine I went into Left Bank Books. Let's just say I went into Left Bank Books and, and they, they had been cleaned out because of all of the ho- holiday shopping and everybody shopping local. 
uh, and they only had two books left, The History of Sanitation in Victorian England and Fifty Shades of Grey. And so I reached out and I picked the first one I came to, and it was The History of Sanitation. And that story might be embellished a little bit, but... I'm not going to tell you how. Uh, but uh, So I've got this book on the history of sanitation in Victorian London, and, uh, and I picked it because it didn't look too terribly interesting, just interesting enough that I could keep reading if I wanted to, but if I wanted to just sit in my lounge chair and pretend to read or let it fall into the sand, it'd be just fine. I mean, it's a history of sanitation. It can handle the sand. You know, it's, it's, There's something inside of us that needs help, that needs peace, that needs rest. Ray Curtis says, there's something inside of us that no amount of vacation can quell. One of the most basic ways we anesthetize our souls is through busyness, through getting stuff done. Do you know what that's like? Do you know what restlessness is? Have you experienced it? Do you have that inside of you? Do you? It kills our children, and it kills our relationships It empties our our relationships of everything that matters because you can't sit still. You can't look anyone in the eye. You're too distracted from the people in your life, and it ruins and wounds those we care about the most. It was St. Augustine, 1,600 years ago, who cried out to God in prayer, You have created us for Yourself, O Lord, and our hearts find no rest until they find their rest in Thee. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is offering rest to the restless. Yet what's driving that restlessness? Because we need to go deeper. It's not just this this, uh, program running in our minds all the time saying, get something done. You know, check your Twitter, check your Facebook, check your email. But there's something underneath that. What's driving it? It's driven by a need to accomplish. Uh, That's what Jesus calls being heavy burdened. Having a burden, something you have to do for the Pharisees, for the religious leaders of the first century, for the pastors of his day, it was, you know, performing kind of religious legalistic rules. That was the burden, needing to accomplish that, needing to tithe your kitchen spices, needing to not interact with certain types of people, needing to stay ceremonially clean, needing to be seen to pray, seen to give, seen to, to be a certain kind of person, constantly needing to measure up by performing certain religious rituals over and over and over again, all day, every day, without ever any rest. And yet anything can drive you like that. It's not just religion that can drive you like that. It can be driven to accomplish by being the perfect parent. And and that's why you're angry at your kids all the time, because they're what keeps you from being seen as the perfect parent. Having to have the perfect yard, having the perfect marriage, having the perfect theology, being seen to be knowledgeable and dependable and competent, whatever. I could, you, know, you can say, hey, you know, if only I could do something great with my life, if I could make a lot of money, or if I could be applauded for my achievements or obtain a certain title or a certain position in life, if I could serve in a field that's prestigious or maybe do something good that helps other people so that other people will tell me that I'm not a nobody then I'll be somebody. It's driven by a need to accomplish, something inside of us saying, I have to accomplish, I have to validate myself. That's driven by a need to validate, a need to be legitimate in our own eyes. Uh, You know, you feel this every time you post something on Facebook. 
maybe you don't. Maybe it's just me. I post something on Facebook, something clever, something pretty, cool photo, my cats. Uh, and, and then I put my phone down. And then five minutes later, I walk by, I see my phone, and what happens? There's something inside of me. I got I to gotta, I gotta check it. Why do I have to check it? Because I need to see whether anybody threw me a like. Because we were wired in the very beginning. We were created to walk around in a garden with God himself continually approving of us. Continually saying, you are valid. You are right. You are mine. You measure up. You are everything I created humanity to be. And when we left that garden and left God, the software and the hardware are still there telling us to look outside of ourselves for our validation. And when you can't not pick up your phone, when you're checking back to see whether somebody likes what you posted, it's telling you that. It's telling you that the story you read about in the Bible is true. We were created to find validation outside of ourselves, but not in Facebook friends, but elsewhere. Quentin, in Arthur Miller's After the Fall, Quentin comes to this point where he says, you know, more and more, I think that for many years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. And then what a good lover. And then what a good father. And finally, how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where God knows what I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway, I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge was in sight, all that remained was this endless argument with myself, this pointless litigation of existence. makes us weary because we're constantly needing to perform, because we're constantly needing to validate ourselves, thinking that that will actually make us whole and complete and silence the voices inside us that tell us we're losers. Think back to the Chariots of Fire, you know, movie back, gosh, 30, 35 years ago. Um, Harold Abrams and Eric Liddell, and I think it was the 1924 Olympics, and uh, Harold Abrams said that, you know, he said as, as he was talking about the race, he says, you know, I raised my eyes and I looked down that corridor four feet wide with 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. And you contrast that with Eric Liddell, who said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure like I was born to run. The difference being that we're, we're all running. We've all got work. And the Bible praises hard work. Hard work is not a problem. Uh, it praises hard work and it prescribes a time for work and a time for rest. God worked during the day and he rested each evening. And he did that for six days and the seventh day was an, a Sabbath rest. It calls us to enter into that Sabbath rest. But we're all running. But why are you running? Are you running your life to gain pleasure? Or are you running your life because you already have it from God, your creator, from Jesus, your savior? always trying to prove ourselves, always needing to validate ourselves, always needing to accomplish enough to justify our existence. Why do we feel we need that? And at heart, it's an attempt to cover over our shame because on this side of the fall, this side of the garden, outside of the garden, where you don't experience God's approval night and day, 
we see the defects. We feel the defects. Not just that we've done bad things, but that we're bad. That there's something about me that's not what it ought to have been. I am not the best of humanity. And so we have this voice inside ourselves saying, you stink, you're a nobody, you're worthless. And it tells us maybe if, if you perform hard enough, if you do enough, if you accomplish enough, if you're respected by enough people, then maybe that voice will be silenced for a season. It's that voice of shame. For some of you, it may be the voice of your mother or father. It may be the voice of the kids you grew up with. Uh, but it's there, and it's the voice of shame. And you think if you can accomplish it, the self-loathing will be silenced. You know, the Bible commends hard work, but it's the why. Are you working to cover over your inadequacy? If so, friends, that is why you are restless this morning. That is why you are weary. That inner voice of shame, it's going to drive you to overwork, to overparent, to overaccomplish, and to loathe yourself for failing to do so. It's a constant treadmill. You can't keep up, and it doesn't lead you anywhere. You know, I mean, I know this. I mean, some of y'all know me really well, and you know, like, I mean, I have, at any given time, I have got a yellow post-it note in my pocket with a list of things that I have to accomplish today. And, and, and it's got to be a yellow one because otherwise it's the wrong color. But it's always a yellow post. It has a list of things. And, and y'all know, I mean, I get a palpable thrill when I can cross something off a list. I mean, honestly, it's like you walk into my office and I'm sitting there at my desk and I say, oh, hey, come on and have a seat. I'm just going to finish this email. And, and that's all you think is happening. But underneath, there's this voice in my head saying, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. And then I can kind of hit send. And then I look, sent. And then suddenly that, it's not enough, you stink, you're no good. And the soundtrack changes, we are the champions, my friends. You know, it's, it's, it's like it just changes. It's like for a brief moment, I feel like I've accomplished something. I am valid, I sent the email, now I can sit down and talk to you. Uh, maybe it's just me. But, uh, you know, I like getting things done because it makes me feel valid. It makes me feel like I matter, like my life means something. In religion... What this does is it leaves us always trying to accomplish, always putting a face forward, running faster, running harder, doing more. What Jesus says is heavy laden. And yet we can never rest and you can never know that it's enough. Jesus calls this weariness. It leaves us feeling weary. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened. Weariness is not the same thing as being physically tired. Weariness is being spiritually tired, emotionally tired. You can be physically tired and not weary. You can be physically rested and yet deeply, deeply weary and at the end of your rope. Uh, it's tired from feeling that need to perform, tired from trying to silence the voice within, to silence the shame. Are you weary? Are you tired? Do you want rest from your labor of trying to validate yourself? If so, Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit, and I promise you will find rest for your soul. How do we find that rest? Jesus, who trades burdens with us. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus calls us burdened, and yet what did Jesus come to do? He came to say, let me have your burden. Let me carry that for you, that burden of shame, that burden of guilt, that burden of needing to measure up and needing to validate yourself. Let me carry that for you. I will instead give you my burden. My burden is light. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange where where on the cross God took uh, our sin my sin, your sin, all of the shame, everything that's defective, not just what you've done, but what you became. He takes all of that and he sends it instead to Jesus of Nazareth and he absorbs your shame. He absorbs your guilt. All that's wrong with you, go into him. He becomes the most concentrated uh, uh, amount of sin in the history of the human race, right there in the person of Jesus. And Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father, not just figuratively, but actually rejecting sin in the person of his Son, turning his back on Jesus Christ, his Son, and rejecting him fully and finally and completely. And then taking the righteousness of Christ, his burden that is so light, taking the righteousness, the worth of Christ, taking his resume, everything he has done, raising the dead, feeding 5,000, always doing what pleased the Father, the perfect life, the honorable life, the life that is worth living. And he takes all of that righteousness and worth and he transfers it to you when you trust in Jesus so that you now fed the 5,000, so that you raised Lazarus from the dead, so that you always did what pleased the Father. Friends, there is nothing that you're going to do in your life that will embellish that resume. It's the great exchange. It's what I do with kids when, when young children, uh, you know, talk to me about, about joining the church is I want to make sure they understand the gospel. That's the most important thing, that it's not just about getting a cracker, that it's not just about doing a duty, that it's not just about being a valid person, that they understand Jesus. And so I'll sit them down on a couch and very often, you know, with the parents there, and I'll take a pillow off the couch and I'll hold that pillow and I'll talk about, you know, that pillow representing my burden my sin, my shame. And we talk about how, God, you can't carry that kind of burden into the presence of a holy God because he's holy, he's glorious, he's beautiful. He can't be in the presence of ugliness and filth and degradation. I don't say degradation because they're like six years old or eight, but, but you know, and, and, and then I'll hand it to them and I'll talk about their burden and, 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 and how are they going to get to God carrying that burden. And and, and, and processing it with them. They understand they've got to get rid of this burden. They've got to get rid of all the guilt for all their sin, all this shame. What are they going to do with it? And I reach over and I say, you know what Jesus did? And I grab the pillow from him and I say, Jesus took your burden. And you know where he took your burden? He took your burden to the cross. And so you're going to heaven now. You know God now. You can have peace with God now because you're not carrying your burden anymore. Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, so that Paul can say in Romans 4, to him who does not work, who doesn't perform, who doesn't get anything done, to him who does not work but trusts God, his faith is reckoned to him as what? 
as righteousness, as the perfect resume, as the perfect report card. You say, Greg, I already know that. I already did that. I became a Christian. No, you don't get it. That's for you now. The gospel isn't just for the non-Christian who wants to become a Christian. As a Christian, this is the platform on which you can build your life, a life with joy, with hope, knowing that you have a Father who is pleased with you, knowing that there's nothing you can do to make him love you one iota less, knowing he's not an angry ogre shaking a stick at you, but he's your dad, and he loves you, and you can soak in it because it's all actually true. Jesus has done this. He has fought the battle. The battle is over. There is nothing more for you to do, but instead God continually leads you in triumphal procession in Christ because the battle is over. The war is done. It is finished, and you are more than a conqueror. Remember the story of a UVA professor a couple years back. Uh, He was out uh, celebrating with some grad students, and they had a few drinks, and he got pulled over by a cop. They did the breathalyzer, they did the sobriety test, and he was over .08. He got a DWI, driving while intoxicated. Police officer asked this professor what he does, and he answered, and, the prof- and then the cop then asked, so uh, how, do you, how do you spell professor? I mean, this guy had a Ph.D., He was the pride of his family. He was a Christian. He was a Southern Baptist deacon. He discipled young Christian men on campus. And you know what was going through his mind at that very moment? He was getting pulled over and busted for a shameful offense that put other people at risk. You know what went through his mind at that very moment? He says, now I know I'm a Christian. A real sinner. Really helpless. Really deserving judgment. And now resting not in my Ph.D., not in my Baptist upbringing, not in my ministry, but resting in the finished work of Christ, I can rest now. March 1965, on the Civil Rights March from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, there was an old woman who was determined that she was going to complete every mile of that march. And it was hot, and she'd been walking for untold hours, indeed days. It was a long distance. And by the end of that day, Martin Luther King Jr., the doctor, came up to her and started begging her to get a spot on the bus. There's a spot on the bus. Why won't you get on the bus? You've done enough. You've already done enough, Miss Hattie. Now get on the bus. But she wouldn't do it. She kept walking, and he asked her again later, Miss Hattie, aren't you tired? And she said, now, Martin, my feet is tired but my soul is rested. Do you know the rest of the soul? Come to me, Jesus says, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give your soul rest. Remember what Jesus is like. He's saying, I am humble and I am gentle. He's humble. That means he's saying, I'm putting myself below you as your servant. I'm not your judge standing over you, telling you to do more. I'm your servant washing your feet so you don't have to wash your feet anymore. He says, I'm gentle. I'm not harsh. I'm not going to break a bruised reed. I'm concerned for you. I'm concerned for your feelings. I'm going to be delicate with you. Like I'm handling an infant or a small child. I understand that you're fragile. Come to me. I'm humble. I'm gentle. And he also says, come to me because you have a father. Realize he calls us children. He says that he's revealed them in verse 25, to little children, and he calls God their father, and that he chooses to reveal him to them. 
to be a little child, to have a dad, to understand that the face of God is no longer distant, but smiling upon you, concerned when he becomes your father. God is saying, I'm taking, your responsi- I'm taking responsibility over you. I am now responsible for your sin. I'm now responsible to pay down your debts. I'm now responsible to bless you. Why? Because I'm your father. You're my child. It says he delights in us where he says, yes, father, for this was your good pleasure. He's saying, yes, father, for this is what delighted you. Do you understand that the father delights in blessing you, delights in revealing himself to you, delights in showing his son to you? This is the soul rest. Jesus says, come to me because you have a father. Got some pictures here, I think. Uh, Nick, could you get the slide up there? If you uh, remember this story, this little girl. um, I better uh, grab that. Uh, This little girl is is Elena Adams. She was nine years old. um, And this is her throwing out the first pitch at a Tampa Bay uh, Rays game. They were playing against the Boston uh, Red Sox. And uh, earlier that day, this little girl thought she was in trouble because at school, her mother had been called to meet with the guidance counselor at school. And the three of them met together. And yet as she entered, there was some relief because the counselor explained that uh, because this little girl's dad was in Afghanistan, um, there was a certain program that they were working with that allowed you know, the children of, of servicemen who were overseas to actually take part in throwing out the first ball. And so that night, this little girl got to throw out the first pitch. And as she stepped up to, uh, you know, stepped up on the pitcher's mound there, uh, over top of her, a big screen came, and it was a pre-recorded little video from her dad telling her this. He said, uh, stay focused, honey. Throw the ball. I love you. I'll see you soon, right there on the Jumbotron. And so then she steps up, and we got the next slide here, and she throws the ball, and, uh, and the guy behind the base, he, he catches it. It's a good throw. He's proud of her. And uh, then something else happens, because then we got the next slide. He took off his mask, and that little girl saw her father, her dad. One more slide here. Look at that little girl's face. That's a girl that knows she has a father. And if you are a Christian and you let the truth of what Jesus is saying sink in, then that's going to be your face because you will know that you are not on your own anymore. You are in the hands of a father and your dad loves you. Next slide. Look at that little girl. I think we got one more here. That's rest. That's what it looks like to rest in the arms of your father. Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary, you who are burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle. I am humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven.